As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stasekel, joined this week by my friend and colleague, Felipe Cardenas. Felipe, what's going on, man? Good morning, Sam. Happy to be here. Happy uh, to see you, actually. Yeah. To see your smiling face. You look good. You look good yeah, enough. Well, I don't know about that part. I'm operating on about 10 hours of sleep these last two nights. I have yet to shower because it was a late one last night. We were recording on Thursday morning. The morning after the USMNT's 3-0 win against Morocco in a friendly match in Cincinnati, uh, their sixth to last game before the World Cup. Um, Felipe and I are going to be talking quite a bit about that match and talking quite a bit as well about the news that came out of Charlotte earlier this week. Miguel Angel Ramirez fired Paul Tenorio's prediction from the preseason that he would last, I think, 11 games or fewer. was off, but just barely off. Only three games. So congrats to Paul on (laughs) getting that one kind of right. I don't know. Um, But a dramatic decision for sure by Charlotte, Felipe, and I, as well as our colleague Pablo Maurer, um, sort of went behind the scenes and did some reporting on, on what exactly went down there because the results were not bad for Charlotte. But first, Felipe, we'll start with the U.S. men's national team. I know you were watching that match closely. A little bit of a recap. Um, I'm sure most of you listening are aware of the particulars, but just in case you're not, uh, the U.S. came out in a different shape than what we've we've been used to seeing. Uh, Brendan Aronson was playing in the middle. Yunus Musa uh, dropped deeper in the midfield, played sort of alongside Tyler Adams. Um, Aronson flared out to the right side of center, creating some space higher and on the left and in the middle for Christian Pulisic to occupy. He did so. Anthony Robinson played really, really, really high on the left-hand side. Joe Scali then filled in for him and did the same thing. When he came on in a planned substitution at halftime, um, and Reggie Cannon sort of pinched in and formed a three-man back line at times with Tim Weah providing the width on the right. I thought the changes worked. Um, we saw them get on the board early uh, in the 26th minute through Aronson after a really fantastic play by Pulisic. Uh, 32nd minute, Tim Weah made it 2-0. And then Haji Wright scored a penalty in his debut in the 64th minute. Kind of a cool moment there with Pulisic pretending like he was going to take the spot kick 
and then giving the ball to his uh, former youth national team teammate who has had kind of a winding road to this point and, and got a goal in his first USMNT cap. Um, it wasn't perfect. Morocco had plenty of chances. They should have scored. Uh, they missed a penalty that should not have been a penalty. That was a ridiculous call. <laughs> um, <laughs> but even even apart from that, they should have scored. Um, and, and they had plenty of chances. So I think a decent amount to digest from a friendly, but the big takeaway for me is, is Greg Berhalter, in my opinion, has a different viable option to use going forward over these next five and a half months before the first game of the World Cup for the U.S. in Qatar. Felipe, what, what did you make of the changes? What did you make of the performance? What stood out to you from the U.S.'s 3-0 win in Cincy? If I'm Greg Berhalter, I'm, I'm very happy with the result. I thought it was, like I told you before we started recording, a professional performance by the U.S. Uh, against a tricky opponent, which in my opinion should have been winning the game early. You know, they they figured out the U.S. Morocco figured out the, the U.S. press about after about 10 minutes, were able to play out of it. Uh, and they found space behind Anthony Robinson as the first half developed and they should have had some, some uh, uh, probably a first goal to open up that game. If not for some good saves uh, by Matt Turner, but overall, I think what you lay out is interesting because it's, it is a friendly, but it was an important friendly for Burhalter because now he can try something different. The, the biggest question for me is what game is he preparing for at the mm-hmm. world cup? I think it's the first game because I don't think, I don't see them playing like that against England that high up the field that open and that aggressive but <laughs> depending on who they play in the first game so. which could be wales could be ukraine you know that's a game that you're going to want to come out and win that's the game that you're going to want to be dictating the tempo uh and, and so it was good i thought we talked a lot about this sam about where aronson was going to be he struggled at the beginning you know i thought morocco had a good eye on him but the goal just opened everything up. You know, I think that what he was doing really well early was recovering possession. You know, he was he was all over the place. I think players like him, that part of their game gets a little bit overlooked. But when he was struggling to get on the ball, he made sure that, okay, I'm going to try to get possession. And then the run he made for that goal was, I think, exactly what you want from that player. He called it a double 10. I don't know if you saw that quote. He called that a double 10. Aaron said did? Holistic. Yeah. Oh, Pulisic. Uh, which it was Aronson. Aronson okay. called yeah. it a double ten with Pulisic. So I think that's an interesting wrinkle that he saw it that way. But mm-hmm. certainly the formation change worked. A lot of players stood out. Yeah, and you can call it a lot of different things. Burhalter called it a three-two-two-three formation after the match, <laughs> which I don't think is a combination that I've ever heard before. Um, but I think whatever you label it is sort of besides the point, which was to get Pulisic and Aronson kind of in the attacking half spaces, Aronson on the right and Pulisic on the left and allow them to, to play between the lines, find spots off the shoulder of the Morocco midfielders um, inside of the wing backs and in front of the three center backs. And I thought they did that pretty much all night. Um, and, and I thought they both did pretty well once they got the ball there. Um, Pulisic in particular, I thought was very good. Uh, Aronson showed some of the qualities that he has in terms of being able to kind of wriggle out of, of tight spaces and pressure and earn a free kick or progress play forward. Um, they were both involved in all three goals, actually. You know, the highlight was the first one with Zimmerman hitting that long ball over the top and Pulisic 
just like a really excellent first touch. Yeah, it was, for those it was of great. you, for those of you that saw the the Ukraine Scotland match earlier on Wednesday, it was very reminiscent of of Yarmolenko's first touch on the opening goal for Ukraine in that game. Um, but then a nice cutback and good awareness to find Aronson, who, like you said, Felipe made that made that nice run into the box. Um, so I thought I thought it was good. You know, you mentioned the defensive stuff. And I do want to spend some time there because there are a few moments when Robinson naturally, as was to be expected, got caught high up the field. Like that was inevitable. It was going to happen, but Morocco was able to break pressure and switch to a wing back, Hakimi or Masani. And those guys had gotten behind Wea and, and Robinson on the, on the left often. So it was mostly Masani in my opinion. And had tons and tons of space. And they weren't super decisive with it. I thought they actually could have done a little bit better. But the U.S. was sitting a bit too deep. And, and Reggie Cannon or the midfielder was a little slow to rotate out. And, and that created some danger. Um, so if they want to continue with this formation going forward, which, again, I don't think we'll see it against England, like you mentioned. But no. maybe against Iran or maybe against Wales or Ukraine. Um, then they need to clean that up for sure. Um, but attacking wise, I liked that they got that this setup got more numbers into the attack than what we were used to seeing in the four three three. Um, I liked that it. I, I really liked that it got Pulisic into that space. He had more room than he's had in any basically any qualifier that I can remember. Um, and and, and need, early too, really early. Yeah. Like he was very active really early on. Yeah, and and I think having Aaron's in there really helped him. Right, because Aronson is a guy that he's annoying. <laughs> he's yeah. annoying to play against. Weston McKenney the other day called him an annoying little gnat, right? And so he he sucks up a lot of oxygen, and he's able to get out of that pressure. And he was the guy getting fouled last night, not Pulisic, really. Which I'm yeah, sure they, was they wanted to whack him a little bit, Aronson. which I'm sure was knew. incredibly refreshing yeah. for Pulisic um, <laughs> to not be getting getting kicked completely. Um, so I, I liked the shape. I thought it opened up a lot of things in the attack. And I liked how Adams and Musa played together as well. Um, you know, Musa was flaring out wide to the left quite a bit to sort of cover for Robinson. Yeah, I, I, that's something I want to talk about, actually. Yeah. Because I it. thought that, that was important because, you know, Hakimi, one of the best right backs in the world, right? And I thought early on, he really figured out Anthony Robinson. Like Anthony wanted to go at him one v one. Hakimi wasn't having it. He was able to to sort of stop that that threat from the U.S. Credit to Anthony Robinson that he just kind of kept going. But it it was a risk because as soon as Hakimi saw Anthony Robinson high up the field, that was his trigger, and he would get up there and get behind. And it did put a lot of pressure on Aaron Long. Like if I'm scouting the U.S., if I'm scouting this team as an as a opponent. Like I'm noticing that, like, okay, we need to occupy whoever's going to play in that left center back role. This one was Aaron Long. If we can occupy him and then attack their left back, we're gonna have we're gonna have some space there. And to your point, yeah, I thought Musa did a really good job. Clearly, they had planned for Hakimi. You know, Musa was there yeah. all the time. You know, and that's why they were able to keep him quiet somewhat. But that's that's part of the new shift in formation. It reminded me somewhat of how Carlo Ancelotti tried to 
really silence Luis Diaz, always having that extra midfielder there. <laughs> always bringing it back to a Colombian. Got always. To, got to. Uh, but we're, let's not compare Greg Berhalte to Carlo Ancelotti, please. But um, <laughs> it was similar where you have that extra, you, you know, Valverde was was doing what Musa was doing. You're still a central midfielder, but you're playing like a wingback when the ball gets shift, shifted over there. You've got to get there and help out. And so it was well done. It wasn't perfect, but it was well done. Yeah. It was nice to see players understanding and so that, that's why if i'm a coach in this game yes the three nil win is very important but i think coaches when they're preparing for a world cup they're evaluating a lot more than the score yeah. and the tactics did these players were they able to comprehend what i'm asking them to do and were they up for it with a against a different opponent no a world cup opponent that's going to play differently that has it's different levels team. of experience it, they are a good team they're a good team from africa that's always going to compete at the world cup so You've got to come out of there think, feeling pretty good about it. I thought the score kind of flattered the U.S. a little bit. Do you agree, agree. with that? Agree. Yeah. yeah, it did. It did. Um, yeah, but all the same, I think what you said, uh, the performance is what Berhalter will take away from it. He was pleased with it after the game. Um, the players were mostly pleased with it after the game while acknowledging that that there were some defensive frailties. You know, Aronson said he thought it was one of their best attacking performances of the last year. Um, and I, I think I would agree with that. I would agree term, with that. Just in terms of how fluid it was, how free-flowing it was. Um, and for me, Felipe, moving forward, I'm curious to see if they run this out again. There were no promises made after the match. We might never see this formation ever again for the U.S. <laughs> that's that's conceivable. I think we will. I think we will. Too. You know why? Because even like a guy like Luca De La Torre comes in and just does was, everything he was right good. away. He, he was, was very he good. was good right away. It was yeah. there was no drop off, and that was a key position in this formation. So I think I thought he actually like, added. Right. I thought he actually yeah. added a little bit in terms of possession after he came in for Tyler Adams. Morocco wasn't doing quite as much to challenge at that point. Um, at that stage of the match, I think it was already three nothing when De La Torre came in. So it was a little bit of a different situation. Um, but I liked what I saw from him for for sure. Um, and and yeah, the performance I thought. There are building blocks here. It wasn't perfect, but that's to be expected when you're changing a shape and you haven't played in it before. There are going to be some hiccups. Um, and, and I thought that that this solved some of the problems that the U.S. had, particularly going forward over it the course didn't of qualifying. Solve, do you think it solved the big one, though? The, the striker? The striker position. I was about to ask you about that. Um, you know, I thought the strikers were okay last night. I didn't think they were bad. Positionally, thought, they were good. Yeah, Ferreira, Ferreira does really good work positionally, in my opinion. Uh, he opened up some spaces for Pulisic and for Aronson and for Wea, for that matter. Um, he didn't get a ton of the ball in, when he was out there on the field, but he had some. He had a couple of chances. He didn't score, but I thought he didn't. He didn't take them poorly either, you know. And, and it was situations where he's getting the ball in a good spot. He's making good moves to get himself open, and it's he he receives it well. He positions his body well, and he fires a shot quickly on target. Um, there was one in particular where he kind of slipped off the shoulder, and I think Pulisic played him into the box um, left of center. And he took a good touch, turned, boom, tried to curl one to the far post. Didn't quite get it there. Goalkeeper did a good job coming out, cutting the angle, and making the save. Um, but I thought I thought he was decent in that way. And I thought Haji Wright was – I thought he had good hold-up play. Um, it, I thought he made good runs. You know, he was involved in in creating the penalty kick. Reggie Cannon played him through. He made a run in behind. He he wasn't quite fast enough to round his defender, 
but he held it up nicely. He waited for his teammates to arrive and he dropped a pass to Tim Weah and, you know, one more pass, one more save, and then Hakimi was clattering into Pulisic for, for the foul in the box. So I thought there were some positives. You know, of course, you want to see a little bit more, but I was more encouraged by the striker play against Morocco than I was in many of the qualifiers, if that makes sense. What did you think of it? No, I would I would tend to agree. I, you know, I think at this point, though, for the U.S., it, especially for fans and even p- pundits and everyone that's covering this team, uh, all those things that you said are true and are important. You know, the game is much more than just tapping the ball in. But everyone wants to see the number nine scoring goals. And yes, Haji, well, Haji, gets, Haji Red did score a goal. PK. It was important. <laughs> it was important. That is important, honestly. Yeah. I mean, it's it, let's not gloss over that. Uh, a goal is a goal. And for strikers, they just need to put it in the back of the net. So, And he's I, been doing I, that a lot for his yeah, club. Yeah. yeah. And I, th- I think the I understand the relationship he has with Pulisic. They, they, play, they grew up together, playing together. That's great. But it, it did, to me, it showed... Also, a team that like kind of believes in this guy, like they they they're glad he's here. Yeah, they want to give him his chance, uh, and, and that's important. But again, I think fans want to see the number nine scoring in the run of play. They want to see that working out. They want to see the guy taking that position by the scruff of the neck and owning it. And again, another game, another moment lost. I think for a, any of the number nines to really like to really grab that position. I still think it's open. It's not a bad thing though. You know. It, it, Berhalter could argue, well, I have many options, right? He could, that could be one of his answers if you I say. Th- I don't think he would argue that necessarily. So, so, so in that <laughs> sense, I think we're still waiting. Uh, fans are still yeah. waiting who the number nine is going to be. Like but, you mentioned, we're still if, five months if, out. Even if one of those guys came out and scored a hat trick last night, you know, a lot can change between now and November. And it, unless you're going to stack months of performances together, both for club and country, then I don't think there are really like any solid expectations we're going to be able to have from that position. And there's still a guy like we haven't seen for a while, Ricardo Pepe, who is, it's not like he's out of the picture. This guy is going to go to the world cup. It's like, he's going to be there. Most likely. I think I I wouldn't say I would be shocked. I would be shocked. He hasn't scored in 25 games, Felipe. I know. I know. know, And, And if Ferreira and Wright continue to do what they're doing at the club level and do well in this June window, then that that's probably two spots right there, Oof. and then who knows? Who knows what could happen with the third? So um, a couple of other things that I wanted to talk about: the center back play. This was the yes. first match uh, without or since Miles Robinson suffered his injury. Uh, Chris Richards is not here with with the U.S. in this camp because he's recovering from an injury of his own. Um, so Aaron Long started next to Walker Zimmerman. Cameron Carter-Vickers came in for Walker Zimmerman at a, in a planned substitution at halftime. Um, I thought Zimmerman was his usual self for the most part. Um, played a really good long ball to Pulisic on the first goal. Kind of just like dropping deep and going g- throwing a bomb yeah. um, to use the other football parlance. Um, <laughs> I thought Long was a little shakier. Um, Burhalter seemed to agree with that given what he said afterwards there were a few occasions where he sort of got bodied by his guy physically um and burhalter said after the match you know our our defenders sometimes got physically dominated (laughs) by by their forwards which is not something you ever really want to see um but that was the style of the striker though from morocco yeah no he's good at their backside he was good at that like they were doing that they were trying to do that because again 
tactically you you lock up your defender and that fullback's going to race right by him. And so that's yeah. what they were trying to do. I agree yeah, no, with it was it was difficult, right? Yeah. But I think like Berhalter, the quote was like, "I think Aaron will use this game as a learning experience," yeah. which isn't really something you, wanna <laughs> necessarily <laughs> you don't want to necessarily hear if you're the player. Um, so I thought Carter Vickers, he had a couple of good moments. He he kind of lost a guy on a cross uh, early slash midway through the second half that probably should have been buried. Matt Turner made a nice save on a on a relatively point blank header there so some room for improvement there for me you know i would guess that we'll see eric palmer brown start in kansas city his hometown against uruguay on sunday um but that that position next to zimmerman is wide open man totally and and that that for me is maybe a bigger concern than striker i would totally agree with that i think no i mean without a doubt because now Burhalter, he's like, okay, my striker's not scoring goals, or maybe I want to play with Ferreira, or maybe I want to play with Haji, right? Well, at least he knows what to do around those guys. And, and he, he kn- knows the guys around that yes. that person can produce. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, Tim Way, perhaps we'll talk about him, but just quickly, you know, he's popping shots from outside the box. He's taking his chances. He's, he's putting playing, some heat on those, Felipe. He's p- playing with his socks low, which I don't know if anyone noticed that. That was a nice look. He, he went with a different look. <laughs> Socks low, shorts the, high. By the, the way, socks low, like right above the shin guard. Um, <laughs> but yeah, my leg. <laughs> um, it, it was. I I agree. I think while that was noteworthy, what they did in the attack, nothing was solved in the back line, like in the in the center back pairing. There wasn't a performance where like, all right, well, here we go. We know who's going to play next to Zimmerman, and you know, yes, like there there's time to figure that out. But against better opponents quicker forwards you know anyone that lines up against walker zimmerman i mean they, gonna, they should have been punished they should have been they should have been night. they should have been and and so think, and so that's that's what burhalter was probably looking at like they got in they had their moments uh it, it's nice to see a center back pinging a ball uh you know to to a pull stick that was making that dive when we're not in midfield you don't always have to play out of the back i think that is an evolution of this mm-hmm. team and so they have that, but the partnership is still, you know, t- TBD. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think eventually we'll see Chris Richards emerge there, assuming he does indeed get healthy. Um, but he's not here for this one, and he'll only have a couple of matches to prepare. Uh, Felipe, we have a few more things to discuss about this game. We've been going for twenty minutes in this first segment, so I think we should take a quick break. But we'll talk about a few more things that we saw off the field, on the field, and one thing that we saw off the field um, that created quite a bit of buzz after the game. Uh, Stay with us, Allocation Disorder. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Welcome back to Allocation Disorder. We are going to continue to break down the U.S. national team's 3-0 win against Morocco in a friendly on Wednesday night. Felipe, we've talked about the change in formation and kind of what that looked like, but there are a couple of big pieces that were not here for this game um, or were here but limited in terms of how many minutes they could play because they're recovering from injury. Um, Gio Reyna, not here. He returned to training with Borussia Dortmund recently off the hamstring injury that he suffered. Weston McKenney. Got 20 minutes off the bench um, in his first appearance of any kind for a few months after suffering a foot injury with Juventus. Uh, Serginio Dest, also not here. Um, and I don't know that you could play this formation if Serginio Dest is playing right back. Um, yeah. But but I think that you can play it, my personal opinion, if you're starting McKenney and if you're starting Reyna. Um, but what do you think? about those two slotting in. What do you think that would look like? Where do you think they would slot in? And how do you think it would work? Yeah, I, I, I could see that. I think McKinney perhaps... Uh, well, let's start with Aronson and Reyna. Reyna, I think, could play in that Aronson role. You've written a lot about it. it they're just very, very different players. Like th- Their motors, their ticks are way different. Uh, I, I think the, the tracking back... You know, sort of like the, the quick play, the quick bursts that you get from Aronson, you don't get from Reina. Reina, I think, is very much more cerebral, very calculated. Uh, you know, he's he can he slows the game down a little bit, but he sees space and he can make those runs. You know, yesterday, U.S. Men's National Team Twitter were like, how do we play without Aronson in the starting lineup? Like, really, like, there's no way we can play without him. Like, he's become that important. You know, if you're swapping, if you're deciding between Reyna of a very healthy Cla- uh, Gio Reyna and Aronson. <laughs> Hopefully you're not deciding between not Claudio Reyna and Bernard uh, If I'm Burhalter and I'm deciding, you know, in a big World Cup match, who am I starting and I have a healthy Gio Reyna, I'm going to start Gio Reyna. Like, I, I think you have a player in Aronson that can come off the bench and still be as effective or be that change of place midfielder. That, that that sort of changes the tempo of the game. So can they all play together? Perhaps you know you could put Aronson where George. Where, look, I'm gonna I'm calling everyone by their dad, George Way. <laughs> you could <laughs> play him where Way was. You could, you could yeah. play him where Tam Way was, and you sort of had that those players around. With McKinney, it's 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 interesting because uh, he does he's 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 different than Musa. You know, he's a different sort of withdrawn midfielder. He's not as technical. Uh, but he can play as sort of like a modern eight that's crashing the box. Uh, I think he's he's very smart in where he positions himself off the ball at times. Uh, but he's just your catalyst for so many things, so he's going to be there. I'm just not yeah. sure, Sam, who you think McKinney is stepping in for in that formation other than perhaps Aronson. I mean, I guess Musa. Yeah. You know, but I would have questions about that. Like I wouldn't be as comfortable with him receiving the ball and turning and trying to break pressure as I am with Musa, although he has some work to do of his own in that he does. regard. He does. Um, and I also would be, okay, is he going to be as disciplined as Musa with his positioning? And that would be the main question, right? Because so much of what makes McKenney really good for the U.S. national team is kind of like being a, a bulldog in there and, and being – able to kind of have a little bit of free reign with his movement, particularly when the other team has the ball and going to try and hunt it and win it back. And with Musa last night, you know, he's good at that too. But with Musa against Morocco, he had to be a little bit more reined in. 
right? And if you're reining in McKenney, are you taking away his best quality? <laughs> you know, and, and so that's a question. Um, I, I think he could play where Aronson played last night, but I don't think he would be as good there as Aronson is. No, for sure. And whoever um, you play next to Adams changes what Adams is going to do too. If you yeah. put McKenney hey, that's our double pivot or that's our central midfield, yeah. you can almost guarantee Adams is going to play a lot deeper and have a lot – his responsibilities change a little bit. 100%. So I, I don't know. I don't know if you run out that same exact shape. Um, I think you could do something where it's kind of a double pivot, but maybe you don't play. Maybe it's more a traditional 4-3-3, but it's just a little bit – it's a subtler tweak in terms of the rotations and where your guys' starting positions are, and maybe you don't push Robinson quite as high, particularly if Dest is in the lineup, yeah. you know, or or if because if you're if Dest is playing with Robinson, then the only guy that's going to be bombing forward like that and staying that high is Dest, and then you're sort of neutralizing one of Robinson's greatest abilities, which is to stretch the field and get forward. So um, I don't know. That's why I was saying I don't know if we'll ever see this this again for the U S yeah. after this camp. Um, but I think, I think like for instance, last night, if Reno was healthy and McKenney was fully fit, I thought it would have been cool to see McKenney in the Musa role and Reina in the Aronson role. I would have been curious to see how that works out. I still think there are possibilities with Reina potentially playing as a false nine. Um, yeah. although at this point, given the fact that he'll have max two games with the team between now and Qatar, that seems it might be tough to implement that, but um, I think it could work, but I don't know. No, I mean, and, and Musa, when I look at Musa, I see a young player. He, he's really good. Uh, he's still got uh, figured out a little bit, though. But he has, there's a lot to figure out. And so if I'm Greg Berhalter in a World Cup setting with the youngest team at the tournament, wherever you can find a little bit of experience, I put him on the field. And if that's putting McKinney where Musa would usually be just to have that sort of professional stature uh, that McKinney brings, maybe you do it. But at the same time, Musa does things that you're not getting out of other players. Uh, you know, here's, here's a curveball. Can, Ooh. can Luca Dilatore play deeper? Can he play in a Musa? Yeah. Role? Yeah, you know, like, absolutely. He could he could fill in for that role. 100%. I think he could fill in there too, and, and yeah. it gives you a, a different look. It gives you the the ball progressor that you're gonna get that you're not getting from McKenney necessarily. That Musa mm-hmm. gives you Musa can mm-hmm. definitely be a ball progressor. So, uh, yeah, I just think that Burhalter has, like you mentioned, uh, he's a four three three coach. I think he's gonna stick to that when the game really matters. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think we'll see a return to that formation. Felipe, I want to ask you about Uruguay, the next opponent, on Sunday. But before we do there, any final stray observations that we haven't already touched on from this game against Morocco? Uh, you know, the goalkeeper position. I mean, I, I thought mm-hmm. Matt Turner, another he was good. very good performance. You know, just, you know, he was there when he needed to be there. Okay. Uh, and and that's all you ask for in, in a goalkeeper. I, th- I, I was watching that second half when the U S were firmly in control, but I was sort of like visualizing if this is a game that really mattered, Matt Turner is doing what he has to do. He's coming out and commanding the box. He's, 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 he's fallen on the rebounds. He's just slowing the game down. He's putting, he's adding this sort of like confidence level to a back line that was a little bit shaky at times. Mm -hmm. And so that's really important. I thought 
she was good. It's going to be a big, big decision for Burhalter down the line, but great to have a yeah. goalkeeper that just shows up. Yep. Zach's definitely not in this camp because he had to withdraw due to family reasons. So Turner presumably, I think would start at least three of the four games. Um, but we'll see about that. He was good last night and continues to build a case for himself to kind of be the number one. So we'll see how that shakes out going forward. Um, Felipe, Uruguay, Sunday, Kansas City. This is a team that you're pretty familiar with, I believe. Um, a conmable squad. So you, I know you watched them at least twice when they played Columbia in qualifying. <laughs> watched um, them a lot, yeah. <laughs> so what what should U.S. fans expect from them? What are some of their dangerous spots? Uh, how can they cause trouble for the Americans? Um, give us give us the lowdown. Yeah, some it's, it's interesting because this is a new era for Uruguay after – I believe 15 years uh, with Oscar Tabárez. Was it only 15? It felt like 50. <laughs> uh, El maestro, you know, a, a former school teacher be- who became a football coach, soccer coach. Uh, and now you have Diego Alonso, former Inter Miami. Inter Miami legend. <laughs> uh, what a story that is from getting fired after what MLS is back. Uh, shortly no, he after made that, it th- he made it Did through he? the season. You're right. You're right. But he thought he got fired. That's true. And then he hadn't been fired yet, but then he did get fired like two weeks later. So that right. was fun. And so somehow, some way, now he's the national team coach for his country, which is a dream job. Uh, you know, I spoke to Facundo Torres, the Orlando City player, Uruguayan player, uh, or a couple months ago. And he has been on the the, the Uruguay squad. He's not playing much, but he's been on the, the World Cup qualifying squads, you know, under Alonso. He was actually brought in by Tavares. And so I asked him, like, what is different? Like, what is different about this team? We know Uruguay quickly for being, you know, hard-nosed defensive team. They will whack you in the middle. They will control games with they a lot of... They will whack you everywhere. Yeah. They're not, they're unafraid they bite, to do that. Some, in some <laughs> They're they're unafraid to get physical. Uh, they just really know how to how to take a match from minute zero to minute ninety. Honestly, that's the that's the best yeah. way to put it. Uh, and they can hurt you uh, almost out of nowhere. And so, what has changed? When I asked Facundo Torres, what is different about the the Uruguay under Diego Alonso? And he mentioned intensity many many times, and that they are a much more intense team, much more high pressing, really putting people under pressure. Uh, They're a lot more of, intense. More intense. They've never been a, a pressing team, though. I guess you know, in, like, ter- in terms of how they play, not in terms yeah, of their mentality. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but Alonzo has brought like this. You know, Alonzo. You watch him on the sideline, and he's very animated. He's sweating. He's yelling. He's celebrating goals like Antonio Conte. You know, Oscar Tabarez was could barely stand. At you know, he was he he. It was. It's a different vibe. And he's so, an older gentleman. He was an older gentleman. And so Facundo Torres is telling me like, this is what Diego Alonso has brought. And so they, they are a strong side. They're a veteran team. They will always be a veteran team. And you just rattle off some of the names, you know, Diego Godin, uh, you know, the, 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 the the forever captain for that side, still a central defender, Uh, Federico Valverde, who just won the champions league with Real Madrid, Uh, Diego Rossi, people that, that, if that follow MLS know him well, Mm -hmm. Nicolas de la Cruz, a very good player for river plate, Rodrigo Betancourt, uh, a very good player, central midfielder starting for Tottenham Hotspur and up front, something that has been exactly, that's been talked about a lot in, in, in Uruguay is who is Diego Alonso striker. And he is essentially without saying it has said, you know, Luis Suarez and Edison Cavani probably won't play together. 
and he's going to run, he's going to roll out with Edison Cavani. So that's your team. I think they're going to trouble the U S in the ways that Uruguay will, tr- will trouble any team that they play. And the U S is going to have to be up for it. Yeah. Uruguay plays Mexico on Thursday night. Uh, you will be listening to that after that game happens. Um, so it'll be curious to see what kind of lineup they roll out in that and how that affects things for them on Sunday. Pretty quick turnaround that matches in Phoenix. So they have some travel to do to Kansas city after the game as well. Um, but Felipe, one, one last element from Wednesday from the U.S., and that was something that was said and not something that was done. Um, Christian Pulisic, uh, you know, kind of did a flash interview after the game with ESPN, uh, was asked about, hey, how does it feel to be back playing in the States? You know, it's been a while since, since your last game here, a few months, two months, I guess, anyway. Um, and he gave an answer that a lot of people would say got fired up about. It, it, it created a reaction. <laughs> um, and he said that, you know, he was happy to be back, but for whatever reason, quote, I'm not super happy with the amount of Americans here. However, that works out if I'm being completely honest, but thanks to the ones who did come and the support is always great from them. Uh, he was referring to the crowd in Cincinnati, uh, which was 19,000 or so Plus. closer to 20,000 in a 26,000 seat stadium. And it was a lot of Morocco fans being there in the crowd. Uh, the Morocco fans, you know, were making a ton of noise, particularly before the game. Uh, the national anthem for them was, was really cool. Uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, I, I got pretty fired up as, as it was ending. Um, but, you know, so, so Felicity caught some flack for this for, I think, a few different reasons. Um, some saw it as a critique of the American, of the U.S. national team fan. Um, some some people pointed out, hey, a lot of those Moroccans are Americans, or a lot of those Moroccan fans are Americans. So, kind of an unfortunate word choice there. Uh, I think, I don't know. I'm I'm willing to extend some grace to Pulisic on that front. I think we know what he what he was trying to say in terms of he wishing more. There there were more USMNT supporters in the stadium, um, and then U.S. soccer catching flack as well for an expensive friendly match in a city and state where they've been a lot over the last seven months. So maybe a little bit of fatigue in terms of the national team. Um, Felipe, what did you make of these comments? What did you make of the reaction to them? I mean, I don't think it was a great take by Christian Pulisic. And you mentioned that the word choice just didn't help him out. You know, I, I doing it immediately after a game in that sort of flash interview was a choice to be honest with you. Um, and, and listen, I, I think what he says, Americans, uh, this is what I think he's referring to. He's looking up at the stands during the game, doesn't see a full stadium. To your point, probably sees a lot of Moroccan fans, a lot of Moroccan flags, which the Moroccan fans in Cincinnati or probably the Ohio area or even just in the Midwest were probably incredibly fired up to see their national team and travel to that stadium you know, to get there. Um, and so this is what happens when the U S plays international friendlies in the U S like the, 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 whoever the opposing team is going to be, they're going to travel. They're going to make their presence felt and Christian Pulisic as the figurehead and the face of us soccer needs to measure his words a little bit better, be a little bit tighter with your statements because it was misinterpreted and that's on him. That's not on the public in, in how we're reading this. Uh, he opened himself up that way. 
And, and, and that's what happens. I think it was just poor word choice. And he, I think he'll learn from this. He's still a young player with a lot of responsibility, public responsibility, but knowing what we know as, as people that cover the, the team and sort of, and, and all of the, not even flag, it's criticism about where the U.S. plays, the sort of fans that they're attracting to the matches, the fans that they're not wanting to attract to certain matches. And then the captain of the team comes out and says this, and it just sounds like there's actual some intent in, hey, we don't want to see the oppo- our oppo- as many opposing fans as we have at these stadiums. And so he'll learn. I think he'll learn. I don't think it was a good take, but I understand where he was coming from. So I want to... I agree with you on the word choice aspect of it, you know, and I think Pulisic, if he could take that back and say USMNT fans instead of Americans, I'm sure he would. Like, I don't think there's yes. any malintent there. Yeah. So like I said, I think I'm willing to extend some grace there, but may- maybe that's a little too kind of me, perhaps. I don't know. Um, regardless, I want to focus on the last thing you said, because if I was trying to put myself in the, in the shoes of a player on the team last night, and I was looking around the stadium before the game and during the game, and if I was a player on the team, I'd be like, damn, we just qualified for the World Cup. We're going off in less than six months. We only have three home games left here before that because the September window we're going to be playing overseas. And this is the crowd? Like, that would be disappointing to me if I was a player. And I think that's reasonable. No, I, I agree. And I, I, I told this to you after the, after, you know, before we recorded. We don't know this. We're speculating. As as Zoran Kurneta would say, we're speculating. <laughs> <laughs> More on that in a minute. Yeah, um, but it just it seemed like it probably only. This is my opinion again. That it like only bothered Christian Pulisic. It probably yeah. bothered other players in that like they want to see a, a, row, a rowdy crowd. But okay, this is the this is the United States, Christian Pulisic. It's still not the most popular sport in the world. The the stories that we put out on The Athletic, go to the comment section. There are literally people like, I live in Cincinnati. I didn't know this game was, go- was happening. Uh, I can guarantee you the Moroccan fans in Ohio knew exactly when this game was taking place. And it's different. It's a different culture, you know? And so the last time I remember a U.S. team being, or a U.S. game being rowdy and loud, was in Cincinnati for that Mexico game, a game that Orlando meant, against Panama, perhaps. Again, I wasn't there. I wasn't yeah. there, but th- a game with a lot of stakes, high stakes. This was not a high stakes game, and yeah. so it's, it's not going to get. It's different for a friendly. For it's sure. not going to get that vibe, and this wasn't a send off tour. I think, if anything, if we're really going to just open up the box here, you know, it's 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 it's, it's we're in this we're nearing the summer. But the World Cup starts in the winter. Yeah, it's kind of and awkward. So, so there's yeah. no. Typically, this would be a send-off tour. There's probably going to be more marketing around it, more efforts to do activations to get the fans involved. Naturally, none more of hype. that's. Yeah. Perhaps, yeah, but none of that is happening. The World Cup being none of that's closer. happening. And and Sam, I'll ask you. You know, one of the last comments that I read before I came on was someone saying, "Hey, we didn't even qualify for the last World Cup." So I think there are still fans that are coming back sam there's they're coming back to this team no, they're no, like show fair. me something show me something so i think that's um, a lot of a lot to dissect yeah i mean i don't know I, I i think part of this is just i think a lot of this is just fatigue in market this is the fourth time the u.s has played in ohio since october yeah you know two in cincinnati two in columbus and, and so like you've sort of tapped out the fan base here yeah and, and people aren't going to travel 
from all 50 states like they do for a qualifier for a friendly match, particularly one midweek. And that's understandable. And, and, and you know, the ticket prices are high. And that's yeah, another that's element another of this. There were $200 and, tickets for this game, by the way. Yeah. And, and so if you're trying to bring a family of four, that's that's a lot of money. You know, even if it's a $65, $70 ticket, that's a lot of money you're spending, especially when you're accounting for parking and concessions and all of that stuff. So I get why it wasn't a huge crowd. Um, at the same time, you know, Felipe, you mentioned this is the U.S. It's a different culture. It is, right? It's not that kind of soccer nation. But, it isn't. you know, we hear it all the time from Greg Berhalter and some of the players. Their mission is to change the way the world perceives American soccer. <laughs> and part of that is changing the way Americans perceive American soccer. And so if the players and the guys on the team want to have higher expectations for the crowd, then maybe are even reasonable or if they don't understand the mitigating factors, I'm sort of okay with that. Like if I'm Christian Pulisic and I'm playing at Chelsea and I'm playing at Dortmund before that, and I'm playing in some of the biggest and best stadiums and atmospheres in the entire European continent. It's quite the come down. It's quite the come down. I want that rush to continue. Right. And, and I want that to, to carry over to the U.S. and, you know, maybe raise the expectations a little bit, raise the standard. I don't know. I'm, I'm I mean, probably I, I talking, why we're th- probably talking way too much about this because no. I really don't think it's that big of a deal. <laughs> um, but I think where the, where the national team plays is, I don't want to say a big deal, but it is, it is always important. It's important in every country, Sam. Mexico, Colombia, Argentina, every story in every country. It's like, why, why does Argentina only play at the Monumental? Why does Mexico only play at the Azteca travel, get them around the country, the same thing. And so to me, again, I don't know the logistics or I'm not looking at any demographics, but like facilities are big facilities were a big one for this. Yeah. I feel like if you want to attract a different fan base, the U S perhaps a Spanish language speaking, the Spanish speaking audience in the U S that you want to, jump on this national team now and into the 2026 world cup. This, this would have been a great match to do that for in a different venue, play in LA, play in, I don't know, play somewhere where you're going to get those fans that perhaps would have been, Oh, they're not playing Mexico. Okay. I'll wear my U S Jersey or I'll take my kids and we'll, and we will cheer for the U S it was in that sense, perhaps a missed opportunity. Yeah. Um, travel considerations go into these things too. A lot of these guys were coming in Sunday um after games a lot of them coming in from europe a little bit before that you don't necessarily want to make them fly all the way to the West Coast. had to take an uber to this to his hotel according to taylor twelman that's crazy really yeah that's that's kind of wild i took an yeah. uber to my hotel from the stadium last <laughs> night so me and me and akimi have that in common um all right well anyway i think we can put put the usmnt's victory to bed we we still have a lot to talk about felipe about charlotte and, and, and their firing of Miguel Angel Ramirez. Stay with us. We'll get to that after the break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder. We have broken down the U.S. men's national team 3-0 win in a friendly against Morocco and Cincinnati. Enough of that. <laughs> time to return to Major League Soccer where most teams are on a break this weekend, but Charlotte FC did not stay out of the news cycle. They made one of the more surprising decisions, in my opinion, in recent MLS history on Tuesday when they announced that they fired Miguel Angel Ramirez after 14 matches. Charlotte results have been pretty good. They're in eighth place in the Eastern Conference. They don't have very many goals uh, tied for last in the league in that metric, as a matter of fact. Um, but the consensus is that they are well-organized, well-drilled. You watch them play. You can see that they're difficult to break down. And that when they do get the ball, uh, they have ideas in possession yeah. um, in a way that you can't really say for many, most teams in MLS. Uh, and a lot of that, presumably, would come down to the coach and his tactics and his ideas. Um Charlotte, I don't know if they disagreed or agreed with that statement. Either way, Miguel Angel Ramirez is gone. He he is fired um, despite, you know, in my opinion, overperforming the talent that he was given um, and having a pretty good start to the season for the expansion team. This was, again, a surprise. Uh, Felipe, we dug into it, but let's wind it back a little. What was your initial reaction when you saw the news? Oh, I, I mean... Very surprised. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I knew this was coming. No, I was very surprised. Uh, I know that you've done a ton of reporting around Charlotte, their 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 build, their the sort of the start that they've had, the difficult start that they've had administratively from a scouting perspective, uh, even just financially, if we want to get into the sort of players that they brought in and the expectation that they had as being as having a very rich owner, an ambitious project, etc., so that being said, you broke it down already. They were playing well. And Miguel Angel Ramirez didn't forget how to be a coach when he came to MLS. So this, this, when I heard that he had been fired, I immediately just assumed, and we were correct here, this was a battle of egos. This is two guys, Miguel Angel Ramirez, Zoran Corneta, the sporting director, who clearly were at odds with each other, did not get along. Uh, and, and it's, it led to a rift and in MLS and in any professional sports environment, you can fire a coach for pretty much anything. And in this case, I guess he was fired because we did he didn't, they didn't like each other. So it, it was a shock in that he was one of the better coaches in major league soccer. Uh, you know, I saw Matt, Matt, Matt Doyle tweeted the day that he was fired. You know, he had him in his top five list for coach of the year. Absolutely. You know, and so yeah. it's like, and and then and I know we're going to get into this, but you know, Cornetta essentially confirmed it had nothing to do really with performance, and so that left a lot open for us to to go and investigate. Yeah, um, and so we did, and Cornetta gave a very bizarre press conference. Felipe, I was not on it because the U.S. players were talking at the same time. You were. Basically, his line was he didn't want to speculate about the reasons for why he fired his head coach. Um, which is a strange way to frame it. Um, again, probably unfortunate word choice. English, not Cornetta's first language, so we'll give him some grace on that. Regardless, he did not want to specify any of the reasons 
for why right. this, this happened, uh, which created kind of a vacuum and some questions, um, not just about why, but like, hey, were there like legal or ethical issues at play here? Did something happen behind the scenes that we don't know about? I called Charlotte to ask that very question. Um, no, nothing legal or ethical happened. Uh, it was not really results-based. Cornetus sort of said that or something to that effect on the press conference, I believe, which leaves us kind of with only one thing, which is what you mentioned, the, the personality, the battle of egos. And there's a little bit more to it, too. It wasn't just Cornetus and Ramirez that were at odds. It was Ramirez and several players, depending on right. who you talk to, like maybe a large percentage of players on Charlotte FC that didn't like his style, didn't like his man management, found him abrasive and stubborn. And one of those players... Carl Swiderski, Polish international, designated player, uh, big transfer. Um, and he, according to our reporting, went to Kurneta before he left to join Poland for the current international break and said, if Miguel is still here when I, when I come back, I'm not going to play until he's gone. And he won't have to worry about not playing because Miguel Angel Ramirez is, as you know, gone <laughs> um yeah. so a weird instance of, of player power of yes. a battle of wills between uh the sporting director and the head coach and another example and at felipe i know you're working on a story on this of a coach brought in from south america um although miguel and ramirez is spanish uh he came from jobs in brazil and ecuador um big personality uh, a guy brought in to either instill, in this case, create a culture or change a culture, and then gone quickly um, in spite of decent results. <laughs> so there's there's a lot to unpack there, but what do you make of this kind of dynamic of, hey, the players didn't like him, the sporting director didn't like him, but it seems mostly like a personality-driven thing. It's not anything like particularly like ethical, legal, even not anything like refusing to give players water or weighing them in like we've seen in previous instances in Atlanta, DC. It's just kind right. of like, we don't really like this guy that much. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, like, but it is, but there are parallels to Atlanta. I think, you know, you and I were talking about this earlier this week uh, where you have uh, a player, for instance, in, jo in, in Atlanta, with Atlanta United, it was Joseph Martinez and Gabriel Heinz that did not get along. And it, it got to the point where, Joseph Martinez, through my reporting, I was able to essentially confirm that he was like, I'm not coming back. I don't, I want out if this, if this guy in the sense, Gabriel Heinz is going to continue to coach at this club. And the decision here to say, we're going to, we'd rather move on from a player than a coach. First of all, it's difficult for probably front office to be in that position, but quite clearly they're going to side with a player. They'll get, they'll, they'll fire the coach and move on get the player mm -hmm. back in good graces uh, and, and go with the interim tag. But that, that was the parallel. I thought, I think player power, the way you position it is, is important in, in this new, I think, trend of coaches with shorter leashes in MLS mm -hmm. and from the South American perspective, or just a foreign manager, there's a lot of, there are a lot of cultural uh, instances that they're having to deal with and a lot of it is on them when i talk for the reporting i've done for the story that i'm working on my sources for in south america whether they're scouts or former coaches uh that represent uh you know managers trying to come to mls or around the world they point to the coaches as they need to change too okay they need to understand 
the mm-hmm. league that they're coming into, the culture they're coming into, the type of players they're about to coach. But at the same time, the front offices, the GMs in particular, the sporting directors need to do better due diligence, need to understand yeah. who they're hiring, the type of personalities that they're hiring. You mentioned he was abrasive, stubborn. Yeah, he's been like that. Yeah. His entire not, career. Not okay? uncommon qualities for any coach, <laughs> American any coach. or or any other nationality. And yeah. and and if and not to be not to psychoanalyze these coaches, but you know, these guys are again, I'm 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 assuming here it's like a type A personality, someone that is coming in, being in charge, setting and also given a responsibility, like you said. We want somebody to establish a culture, to establish a tactical identity from the start, from zero. That's a lot of power you're giving to somebody. And so if they're unable to manage that as a club, as a front office, uh, it's going to go south. And and again, I think now we're seeing a different generation of player as well that mm-hmm. is quicker to perhaps uh, raise their hand. I don't like this. I don't agree with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, sporting directors who I think are getting perhaps a little too close to the locker room. Uh, that rubs coaches the wrong way. I will guarantee you that rubs coaches the wrong way. And that is just, in my opinion, it's creating this ticking time bomb at places where the work culture is not set. And Charlotte's yeah. case, the, this this has a lot to do with the culture at the club. Yeah, I would agree. You mentioned something that I want to come back to, due diligence. And and I don't it doesn't seem like Charlotte really did them did theirs on this hire. They said they did. They said they did. They but, did but you mentioned it. The book was out on on Ramirez's personality, just like it was out on Heinze's. Oh, right? Yeah. More so and, even. And, and and if you do the proper calls and you understand what the guy is like then you have an understanding of is this somebody that i want to work with is this somebody that i can mesh with and get along with and sometimes you're going to make those calls you're going to get that information and it's just not going to go well um but i'm not convinced that charlotte really understood what they were getting into because when you're firing a coach after 14 games for essentially what it boils down to personality clashes like you should have known his personality before you hired him and you should have catered your roster to his personality. And you have to have an understanding of what you want to be and how you want to build it. Right. And so if you're going to bring in a lot of players from Europe, um, big players from Europe, or your biggest signings are going to be from over there um, from cultures, Poland that aren't particularly similar to the one that Ramirez is from, you know, or, or the ones that he's worked in, like, is that going to be good? You know, are you bringing in a coach who's worked, who likes to work with young players? And are you giving him a roster full of veteran? Like all of these things have to, have to fit. And, and all it this happened at Charlotte. It and happened. It, yes. It, and it, and it seems like this wasn't really a good fit. No. Um, and the question for me is why? Like, Then why had, hire him? Yeah. Exactly. So if it's not going to be a good fit, why'd you hire him in the first place? And Kronetza for, it, I think, I don't know, again, I believe he has said, you know, he has contacts in Europe. You know, he can get players from Europe. Yeah. I mean, he was an agent over there for he was an agent 20 there. years. Yeah. Right. And so what sort of player did Miguel Angel Ramirez win with in South America? Young, quick, fast, technical, South American, Independiente Valle. Young guys and, and that they he brought, brought up. They brought some of those guys, to be fair. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And so 
but and that's important. I think that has been that has strengthened this team. And those guys are important for a coach too because they become proxies for them in the on the field in the locker room. They they can tell the guy that's like, hey, I'm not sure about how this coach is going about training or. He's like, no, 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 it's okay. Like, this is what we do. We're going to be successful. Those players are important, but it does. It did look like just a mismatch of philosophies from sporting director to coach, and yeah. then the two of them battling over whose philosophy is going to be better for the for, for the fit. So, Sam, I did want to say one thing because I want to hear your opinion on this. It's like I've been thinking about this a lot. It's like, how did Zoran Kurnetta convince David Tepper to make this decision? That's a great uh, question. And I know, don't know the answer to that. I, the I wish owners, did. The owners but, in MLS, we, we give them credit. We give, we criticize them constructively when they deserve it. Uh, you know, but they're also part of these decisions, you know, and, and I've been thinking about that a lot. Tepper is the one that's paying, paying out the remainder of Ramirez's contract. He was the one with yes. the first quote in the press release. And, and Felipe, to answer your question, A, I don't know for sure, but if I'm going to try and connect the dots, I'm going to say Ramirez's mouth did him zero favors with David Tepper. 100%. Zero. Yeah. You know, he had the famous or infamous quote before the start of the season when asked about the roster that, you know, we're bleeped, we're screwed. <laughs> um, you know, and, and he was asked about, you know, recently about Charlotte's place near the bottom of the salary rankings in MLS. And he gave a quote about like, hey, I'm not Harry Potter. I'm not a magician. I'm not a wizard. I just work with what I have. And like, we do a good job with that. And that's a kind of a shot too, right? And, it is. And, go on, because I, I have a retort. Go on. And, and, and so, well, it might not be a shot, but it can be perceived as one if you're already in a tense situation, right? Um, and that's clearly he was. And so you start to stack those things together. Maybe there were more comments that were made by Ramirez that rubbed Tepper the wrong way, maybe after a loss or something like that. And, and you get an owner to a place where he's comfortable doing something like this. And for me, this is a telling anecdote. I'm in Cincinnati. I'm in the press box for the U.S. game against Morocco. I'm chatting with, you know, an FC Cincinnati employee that I know uh, before the match kicks off. And I'm like kind of joking around. I'm like, you guys are finally getting it together. You're having a good season, you know? And he's <laughs> like, oh, my life's so much, it's so much more relaxing and so much better and so much happier. It's like a weight's lifted off. And he's like, and we're not even the crappy expansion team anymore. We're not even the, the crazy expansion team. And he's referring to Charlotte. So yeah. that's the boat that Charlotte is in now where you have FC Cincinnati dunking on you. Oof. Like that's, that's not really what you want. <laughs> no, no. And it's, it's not a good look for, for David Tepper, you know, billionaire, billionaire owner, uh, entrepreneur. Having plenty of issues with the Panthers. Yeah. Who, who, and now everyone is sort of is linking everyone in Charlotte and, and nationally is linking the problems that he has with the Panthers with the problems he's having with, uh, Charlotte FC, which goes back to what I said before, this is obviously a, a problem of culture. But to go back to 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 what Miguel Anjo Ramirez has said publicly, I agree, it did not do him any favors saying that we are estamos jodidos, we are screwed. Uh, you know, sort of that the Harry Potter joke quip that he made about I don't do magic. Uh, I mean, clearly these are shots in hindsight at the players that he was given, the roster that he was given, the spend that he probably disagrees with. Yeah, uh, and, and, and then I think it's fair to say, based on my reporting, that was he expected something different and was told something different in terms of the amount of money they were going right, to put into the team. Right, right. 
and and so my point is is that in 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 South America, and this isn't just it. This this only happens in South America, and and there are no uh, instances where, where where coaches go by the book and are company men, if you will. But it is very common for coaches to be outspoken, to yeah. be that personality that's in front of the microphone saying, "I need better players. I need better quality. It would be great if we were." as ambitious as the teams at the top of the table, you know, that gets fans riled up, that gets the headlines going. It can put some pressure cause, on the president. It, it puts, it puts yeah. pressure on, on the higher ups. Like that's what they do. And Miguel Angel Ramirez is coming from that sort of culture where that's what he does, that he's the guy that says that he's the guy that's supposed to say that because if he doesn't say, he's probably thinking who else is going to say it. Right. Uh, and, but it, it's it, that, that to me is a cultural and that doesn't happen in well. American sports. No, it's as soon much as you more go after united, an owner, united front, united front, yeah. united front. You can have the disagreements, I mean, but they stay behind the scenes. If the starting quarterback uh, of the Dallas Cowboys, or if the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys goes after Jerry Jones in a way where it's like a, uh, insinuating that he's not spending, that he's cheap, that he's not ambitious, that's going to be on every sports talk show yeah. for weeks and, until yeah. something happens, and so that. You know, I, I think again, just to sort of loop end this loop is that uh, there there is there, this clash of cultures is going to continue, and we have it in our story where you know Miguel Angel Ramirez did a uh, an interview with Marca in Spain, you know, sort of a bigger outlet in Spain, and there are two things that jumped out. One is what he said about American culture. Uh, he you know he said that he thought. This was such a weird quote to me. Like <laughs> I flagged it in, a, in like the Google Doc we were working on. I was like, "What yeah. is he talking about?" <laughs> so he said that he expected Americans and the American like lifestyle, workplace. work lifestyle, yeah. the workplace, yeah. to be quicker, to be faster paced. And he said they are not like that, and I have told them that. Uh, which was Kurnitza, interesting, by the way. Not American. Yes, exactly. Never worked in the U.S. But I think he's probably he. You know what he's saying. This is me assuming he's, he's he arrives at the at this country that he's heard about as being the greatest country in the world, and you know we're very progressive and all that. And perhaps he was taken aback by the fact that maybe it wasn't in his opinion. That was one thing. The other thing about that interview that I thought was interesting. A, he which, didn't, he, but by the way, just ahead. quick caveat, and and sorry if you were about to say this. He said the American players were very hardworking, and he was yeah. very impressed by them. So he was kind of talking about front office directly. You would assume, <laughs> absolutely. Because yeah. he, he, he. I, I wasn't going to say this, but yes, like after saying that Americans perhaps aren't as hardworking as he thought they were going to be, he then said that the American player is the complete opposite. That they, he literally said they shut their mouth and do what they're told. <laughs> uh, but he said that the talent level is high, the commitment is high, the work ethic is incredibly high. He said on days off. He, the American players are asking the trainers to be at the facility because they want to be there. But the one thing I want to point out finally with that interview, that was a, there's a link in the story that you can see it. He does the interview in his office with two Spanish reporters and they, there's times where they sort of like laugh and giggle at things. So clearly there was a little bit, there's probably a, a relationship there. I can guarantee that that was not set up by Charlotte FC's communications team. <laughs> Okay, like he's in his office, door shut, talking to two Spanish journalists about American culture, the the, the work ethic that he doesn't agree with, that he's that he's disappointed in, the difficulty of how the, the the roster build has been. We had six players when I walked in, and the Spanish guys are laughing at that. 
It was he was on his which he by, was, by the way, he was what did he rogue. expect from an expansion team? Like well, he probably but, didn't understand what an expansion team is. I mean, that's it's not, another thing. It's not that hard of a concept, Felipe. It doesn't exist rarely in international. Sure, soccer, but you're though. starting a team from scratch. Of course, you're not going to have all your players ready, you know. And yeah. either way, to your point, Ramirez in something that's maybe unheard of, probably not. Maybe Thierry Henry had this. Um, he had his own PR agency working for him. Um, that's bizarre, and that caused some tension. <laughs> there was a perception in the Charlotte front office, according to people I've talked to, that Ramirez was trying to take credit for everything and deflect blame for anything that went wrong. And that was apparently a source of tension between him and Kurnetza. And I think that's kind of what this boils down to. Again, it's the clash of egos. Um, It's two guys that want to be seen as the guy that's driving progress forward at the club. They want the credit for it. And they have conflicting philosophies and conflicting ideas on how to do things. <laughs> and so when you have a situation like that, where two strong egos, two big personalities, two different sets of ideas, and two guys who aren't going to back down in terms of, hey, like, I deserve the attention. I deserve the credit. It's volatile. And Charlotte has been volatile, not just in this, but in many different areas of their club thus far. I still think this decision was incredibly short-sighted. I think Ramirez was one of the better coaches in MLS. I do think he has, I think he has that had that team outperforming its overall level of talent, um, certainly outperforming its overall level of spend. And you know, you have you have a sporting director who, to be frank, has been incredibly arrogant with some of his comments and behaviors um, since since he took over and since he began. Uh, with Charlotte FC (laughs) and you know, you're sticking with him over the head coach. Maybe it'll work, right? Because there was some tension in that locker room and Christian Latanzio, the interim head coach is well-regarded. You know, he was an assistant with NYCFC under Patrick Vera at under Patrick Vera at Nice. And according to what I've been told, he turned down the opportunity to be the lead assistant at Crystal Palace to come to Charlotte. Um, So again, a guy that has a good reputation and maybe they'll get a bump from him. It wouldn't be the first time we've seen that from a new head coach coming in. And he, but he has work to do too. We know we reported yeah. that there was a contingent of players that went to Miguel Angel Ramirez's house. They're with him, do or yeah. die players that came here because of him, that wanted to play here, that wanted to leave their families in South America uh, and, and come to Major League Soccer and be su- successful under him. So Latanzio is going to have to convince those guys. That it's yeah. going to be fine. The, the the two things that I'll mention that you brought up because I think it's interesting. The PR representative or agency that Miguel Angel Ramirez has, you know, I think yeah, I agree. It is rare, but just like players are brands today, coaches are increasingly be going that route too. You know, they're always looking for the better opportunity, especially and Ramirez, young coaches. Young guy who's young trying guy. to be fashionable on the sideline and, and yeah, look absolutely. like, I don't know, Pep's little cousin <laughs> or something like that. 100%. 100%. That, that is important to them to, to be, to have a brand. Uh, you know, he's the tactical guy. He's the young guy. He's uh, outspoken. He's smart. Um, he's fashionable, like you said. And, and so that's where that goes. But th- the last thing I'll say about this is that it's not also, this is also not unprecedented. I think you brought that up really early for a sporting director and a, and a coach to not get along. I think the difference it's common it's for those guys common. to have disagreements, but Absolutely. Lo- most of them work through it. Yes. And, and we go back to expansion teams. Well, Atlanta United 
you know, the big story I did on Atlanta United on the relationship between the front office, particularly Carlos Bocanegra and, and Tata Martino, those problems started in 2016 before the ball even rolled once yeah. for Atlanta United, and they still won MLS Cup two years later. Right. And so th- that has a lot to do with what, who's around the coach, who are the players, who are, what is the culture like? The infrastructure who, and the, the due diligence. The, if the you understand, hey, this isn't going to be a great fit between me and this guy on a personal level, but can we build systems around us to make the machine run smoothly in spite of that, yeah. right? It's it's understanding what you're getting into. It's doing the due diligence and cr- trying to make make the fit as smooth as possible. And I don't think Charlotte did that, and this ended up being a square peg and a round hole. And and Charlotte, I think this is going to be a setback for them. Uh, for sure. I think that I think they have a lot of issues to work through. Um, and you know, I'm curious to see how much longer Kurnita has. To be totally honest, it's it's, it's interesting because now he is. He's made this decision he, that this, puts him. This puts him on the hot seat. Absolutely, it's like mm-hmm. now everything depends on literally every touch, every result, every game from now on is going to assure or put his his job in trouble. Because if David Tepper, Sears obviously involved in this decision, clearly he's like, all right, you hired this guy. You, you hired this guy less like, than a year ago. You gave him fourteen games. You're telling me to cut cut bait right now? Like mm-hmm. that's a risk. You're putting yourself out there. And, right. and we'll we'll see how it we'll see how it ends. In any industry, th- when you hire and then fire, that is a reflection on your decision making, on your mm-hmm. talent evaluation, all that. So certainly he's in he's in trouble in that sense. And again, I'll say I said it once, I'll say it again. Sporting directors getting too close to the locker room, that's gonna cause problems every single time with the coach, no doubt. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Felipe, you don't cause any problems with me. Thanks for joining, man. This was fun. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Thank you all for listening to Allocation Disorder. A little bit of a good mashup of USMNT and MLS talk on this one. We will be back next week as the U.S. continues to make their way through the June window and MLS comings and goings continue to happen. I am sure. I am Sam Stasekel. He's Felipe Cardenas. Thank you guys so much for listening. Until next time.